episode 121. What a doll. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a December 1st, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. It's amazing, I'm the reason, everybody fired up this evening. A decade before the end of segregation, a little white girl and a black woman in Kansas were quietly busting through racial barriers. Join museum specialist Donna Ray Pearson and me as we examine an African-American doll from a historic black neighborhood in Topeka, Kansas. In the 1940s, a kind black woman gave this doll to a young Vicki Johnson, who cherished it for over 70 years. Did this tiny doll do something that civil courts and Congress couldn't achieve? Establish a bond between two very different social groups. Then, we go behind the scenes, as cars, the need for speed, comes to a crushing end. The exhibit's been on display at the Kansas Historical Society for almost one year, and it's time to move on. Find out how staff move modern and antique cars inside a museum gallery. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town Kansas newspaper man, to Elmo, the Muppet Megastar. Developed in the 1980s, this toddler monster has come to dominate the cast of Sesame Street. Did White and Elmo share a bizarre habit of referring to themselves in third person? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, what a doll. It's amazing, so amazing, so amazing. Good morning, Donna Ray. Good morning, Mara. Today we are talking about a doll from the 1940s, and this doll was made to resemble an African-American child. Donna Ray, can you briefly describe the appearance of the doll? Tell us what it looks like. Sure, Marl. It's probably about um, six or seven inches tall. It's a cloth doll. Um, it's Kind of looks like a little gingerbread man with its little hands up in the air. Yes, it looks very gingerbread man-like. <laughs> and it's it's got on a little gingham dress, very simple. Um, and, it, you know, it's just a really simplistic doll. There's not a lot to it. Very simple. It looks like it could easily be handmade, right? Oh, yeah, def- definitely probably handmade. The eyes are embroidered on as well as the lips and the mouth. And the hair is made out of yarn. So it's definitely not ma- mass manufactured anywhere. Okay. This doll originated from a black community in Topeka named Mudtown. Tell us a little bit about Mudtown and how it got its name. And tell us a little bit about some other historic black communities in Kansas. Uh, Mudtown is in Topeka, like you said, and it's just located off of the downtown area. And through Topeka, there's a river, there's a big creek, Mm -hmm. and Mudtown is adjacent to Shunga Creek, which has a tendency, used to have a tendency to flood. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine who grew up there, Jack Alexander, said the reason that's 
the reason why they called it Mudtown is because it flooded and it was just walking in mud. So that makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some of the other black communities around um, Kansas, you know, they could have been located anywhere, urban or rural. Uh, for instance, out there was one way out in western Kansas, Morton City in Hodgman County, mm-hmm. and um, there were other ones. You know, started even before the Exodusters movement in Kansas City, like Quindaro or Rattlebone, Rattlebone Hollow. There are other ones in southeastern Kansas, you know, Baxter Springs, Little Caney. So. And you, there was some additional settlements or uh, black communities within Topeka, right, beyond just Mudtown, is that correct? Oh, yeah. There were some other ones also. There was, um, you know, up in the sands, which is across the river. And because it was in a sandy area, yeah, very si- very simple names. <laughs> There's also um, Tennessee Town. It was founded by Exodusters in about 1878, and it's still a vibrant community. Community that exists today. So, and there was the bottoms. The bottoms was probably would have been the oldest black community in okay. Topeka. So, Topeka actually was pretty integrated on some levels in that the, they were spread all across the city, but they were enclaves. And, and is there a, a standard time frame that most of these communities start to show up? I mean, were they here during the territorial period in the 1850s, or is this post Civil War? that African-Americans are coming to Kansas? They're both. Um, and you can find some of the earliest ones starting probably around the 18, 1860s or so. So just right after the Civil War happened, um, you start seeing more discrete areas of black settlement. But there were people, there were black people here in the territorial days, you know, in Leavenworth. Um, there was one way far down south, Humboldt, Kansas. Okay. Um, that was a mixture of black and Indian and white community down there. And we should say, like, these communities, they didn't always, they weren't uh, exclusive um, um, just just because of, of racial tensions. But, I mean, that, that's often how communities develop or enclaves within cities is you have, a, you have little China, you have German towns. So it's a lot of times it's the internal cohesion, not necessarily external forces, right? Exactly. I mean, and that's one thing that people also have to understand about enclaves is they can, you know, across ethnic lines, you can find, you know, a family that comes into a city, two or three families that come in at one time, they settle in one particular area, then someone else comes in. So by, you know, almost organically, you create a neighborhood of just one type of people. Um, but there were some external forces, too. You know, there was not the ability to buy anywhere or be able to afford to buy anywhere within the city limits. So that was also helpful because if you lived in one of those enclaves, you probably had some sort of support system going on. This doll was given to a young white girl named Vicki Johnson in the 1940s. And that's kind of unusual to see a young white girl with an African-American doll. How did Vicki come to possess this doll? Well, it's an interesting story. According to Vicki, um, she's the one who donated us the doll, um, that while she was living in Mudtown, which is kind of unusual in and of itself, that Mm -hmm. um, she lived there, and that she befriended an elderly black woman. And we really could not find out. Unfortunately, she was the age that we, she did not remember her Right, name. she's like four years old, old or something when she yeah. got this doll. Yeah, so we don't really know too much about the elderly black woman, except that she gave her this doll as a token of appreciation, I guess. Um, 
And we kind of assume that the doll is from the 1940s, but you you kind of question if it's not even earlier than that, if the doll wasn't something that this lady, um, this elderly black woman in Mudtown, that she had had for many years. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the mysteries, because when you look at the doll, um, we can kind of gauge that it looks like it has a... a it looks like a feel for the 1920s era. Vicky's parents operated a grocery store in Mudtown. Um, this was years before desegregation. Uh, was it unusual for a white family to operate commercial business in a black community? Blacks generally operated businesses within their own communities, especially from the especially from about the 1880s to the 1930s or 40ish. Mm-hmm. It was considered kind of the golden era of black business. This would have been around the Harlem time of the Harlem Renaissance mm-hmm. in New York. It's yep, that part is also in there too. So you know, it was that was the parallel community that was created. So the, the city within the city, there were their schools, there were their own businesses, their churches, their recreation establishments. But as we started moving more toward desegregation, you start to see some of those things fall away from the black community and white community. And people from the white community were able to take advantage of that and move and have businesses. Vicky donated this doll in 2010. That means that this little girl kept this doll for over 70 years and eventually donated it to a cultural institution like us uh, that would share the story. What would you say about the impact of the elderly, elderly neighbor's gesture? I mean, to me, it's very interesting what is a very simple gesture of an old lady giving a young girl a doll um, on the surface is very minimal. But when you start thinking about it, like this elderly lady gave the doll to this little white girl and whether she intended to be busting racial racial barriers (laughs) or she was just giving a girl a doll. Either way, this girl clearly took it as something very personal because she kept this doll for over 70 years years and remembered the story to it and eventually donated it to an institution. And, you know, I don't know if Vicky had children, but I'm sure... Vicky did have children, and she decided she was not going to give her children this doll. <laughs> but still, I mean, I'm yeah. sure she had this... She had children, and I'm sure this doll was a point of discussion with these kids. I mean, it's just... It's a ripple effect of what this lady did in the 1940s in a positive direction. Right. I mean, I kind of hope... I, you know, again, since we don't know who the neighbor was, I would like to believe that the, that she was giving this doll almost as a symbol. It was a way to, to cross a bridge to make the little girl feel more comfortable. Um, and the long-lasting impact was is that hopefully Vicky carried this memory with her and, and throughout her life that maybe she treated black people differently at different occasions because she had that initial bond at such a young age. And she still had that reminder, that symbolic reminder with her all the time. And, you know, Vicky has long since moved out of the state. So she literally carried this doll through her life through mm-hmm. her travels, and the doll is in great condition. So um, this gesture alone had to symbolize something to her. And hopefully that us by sharing this story, it will have an impact on somebody else too. All right. Well, thanks, Donna Ray, for telling us about the, uh, the African-American doll and uh, Vicki Johnson's story. All right. Thank you, Mom. A movement for human rights creates strange partners. Nick Childs was born in South Carolina, and in 1886, he moved to Topeka, Kansas, where he founded The Plain Dealer, 
a newspaper that ran from 1899 to 1958. Childs is considered to be the most successful black newspaper man in Kansas and one of the strongest in the nation. In addition to publishing, Childs also operated a hotel and bar in Tennessee Town, a historic black community in Topeka. Though a bar owner, Childs is known to have come to the aid of the 19th century's most powerful advocate of prohibition. That is today's Kansas Quiz. Name the bar-smashing temperance leader that Nick Childs once bailed out of jail. All good things come to an end. On November 29th, the temporary exhibit Cars, the Need for Speed, closed. Now we prepare for the 150th celebration of Kansas statehood with the exhibit 150 Things I Love About Kansas. But before that, we go behind the scenes with conservator Nikayla Zimmerman and exhibits chief Ron Seeger to see how an exhibit is torn down and find out just how they plan to move four automobiles inside a museum gallery. Ron, along with artifacts, there's a lot of stuff that goes into uh, an exhibit. Can you talk about what some of those some of those other stuff, what the other stuff is, and um, you know, of those, of that material, how much gets used regularly in exhibits or recycled for exhibits? Well, generally, there's quite a bit of uh, plexiglass that's used to cover artifacts. There's cases. There's raw materials like plywood and and uh, two by fours, that sort of thing. Uh, we try to use it as much as possible, and uh, and really, a lot of times we build things with reusing them in mind. So. And all this stuff is fabricated in, in your shop, right? Correct. Barriers or cases. You actually have to build this stuff from kind of ground, ground, from the ground up. Correct. What will be the most challenging artifact to remove from this exhibit? From this exhibit, it will be the Great Smith automobile, um, just primarily because, it's, because of its weight and because the wheels, that uh, the tires that are on it are very fragile, so we can't roll it, so we have to jack it up and... And it's very heavy. It takes quite a few people to move it. And we have to take the doors out of the gallery in order to get it back into the collection story. And this is not your first time doing this, huh? No. We're kind of tired of moving the uh, Great Smith around, but uh, we'll do it whenever we need to. We should just leave the Great Smith alone. That's right. Does striking an exhibit, does it, does it make you feel sad to um, see those things no, go away? No, I'm glad to get rid of them and move on to the new things. Oh, no, it's, a, it's an exciting time, actually. It's a joyous time for you. It is. It's joyous. Good morning, Nikayla Zimmerman, registrar and conservator at the Kansas Museum of History. Today we're standing in the temporary gallery uh, of the Kansas State Historical Society, and we are striking, or uh, basically breaking down and removing uh, an exhibit. How many artifacts are currently on exhibit? Um, there's probably, there's around 100 things on exhibit right now, a little over 100. This exhibit is a little heavier on loans than what we normally have, so probably a little over half of okay. everything that was on display is going to go back to a lender. Uh-huh. We had cars on exhibit that we only own one of the cars, so it stays here. But all the other cars that were on exhibit, there are three that will go back to the lenders, and the racing uniforms go back to the lenders, and 
So they have a lot of bits and pieces too. So right. All of that goes so back. So cars, full-sized cars. Full-sized cars, racing cars. Yep. So, so the uh, used car lot is, is going away. It is out of here. Everything must go. And in fact, this morning, one of the cars, the lenders already picked up one of the cars, right? Right. And it was the easiest to get out of here because it was a little midget racer. So it wasn't very big at all. In particular with the race cars, what had to be done to them before they could go on exhibit? Well, typically when you display a car and when you have a car in in your collection, you want all the fluids to be drained out. You don't want the battery to be in there because that can cause problems. You know, fluids leak or, you know, the battery can corrode and then that causes bigger problems. Mm-hmm. We were really lucky. Um, this time, since we had cars that were used by race car drivers, they know how to take care of their cars and they know how to do all of that. So we were able to say, you know, hey, before you come, can you drain all the fluids out of your car? But then we were super lucky because the stock car, which was our biggest car, which we thought would pose the biggest problem, is nothing but the body. It has no engine in it because she doesn't use it to race anymore. So it's basically just a hollow shell. So we didn't have to do anything to it. As you say goodbye to cars, the need for speed, Mm -hmm. I know it's an emotional time period. It's so sad. I'm crying a little on the inside today. Do you have a favorite artifact that was on exhibit or do you have one of those artifacts that you would like to see just go away? Well, I'm kind of, I'm happy to see the loans go away just because it's kind of stressful for us because if anything goes wrong, we're responsible for them. So, you know, if the building blew away in a tornado, that's our responsibility. Right. And um, you should sure you should lay awake worrying about that at night. <laughs> I don't worry about it at night, but it's just nice to see them, you know, so we can bring in the next round of loans. Um, I, I think my favorite thing in the exhibit was actually the sulky, which really doesn't have anything to do with car racing at all. But, but it's, it's an early form of racing. Exactly. And it's hooked up to our, one of our horse mannequins that was um, came out of an old harness shop. Right, and, which is a staff favorite. Right. And then uh, Fox, which is the horse's name, he's covered with a blanket that was from a horse that won several races. So it just looks cool. The answer to today's Kansas quiz is Carrie Nation. A determined advocate for the elimination of alcohol, Nation was well known for tirades that often involved smashing the windows of saloon halls. Her actions often landed her in jail, and on one occasion, Nick Childs helped her out. Childs also helped Nation start her own newspaper, The Smasher Mail. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Public Relations Officer Bobby Athan. Say hello, Bobby. Hi, Merle. <laughs> and Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Today we are connecting William Allen White, a newspaper editor from small town Kansas, to Elmo, the fictional Sesame Street character. Uh, and he's also going to be celebrating his birthday here either next month or the month after that. We're not quite sure. Um, Bobby, you want to give us a little background on uh, on little Elmo? Sure. Um, Elmo is a friendly, furry red monster, and he's a self-described three-year-old. Renowned puppeteer Jim Henson created Sesame Street, a pioneering children's program that we all know, which first aired in 1969, and he coined the word Muppet by joining the words Muppet and Marionette. Right, so if it's a Muppet, that's specifically Jim Henson. Otherwise, it's just a puppet. Right. In 1980, Elmo was introduced to the already well-established cast of characters um, on Sesame Street. And 
Um, the puppet Elmo existed for a number of years on the set before the puppeteer Kevin Clash picked him up and decided to create the monster character. Um, in Sesame Street folklore, Elmer's family is from the South. His father is a U.S. service monster. Hmm. <laughs> um, Much and, like a U.S. service man, he's a service <laughs> monster. And, and he's, um, it, it's said that he has served at least one tour in Iraq. Some fans um, were really um, resentful of Elmo's rapid rise to fame on Sesame Street, and they called him the Red Menace. You count mm-hmm. me in that category. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of taken over the, the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll all remember, in 1996, the nation caught Elmo mania when shoppers um, competed to purchase a stuffed reproduction of the monster. It got kind of nasty mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. It was like the Cabbage Patch Kids of that, right. <laughs> that generation. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so he's an interesting. I found a couple of other things too. He had a pet goldfish named Dorothy. Wonder mm. maybe was named after Dorothy Gale. I don't know. Oh. Um, and his birthday um, is supposed to be February third. So okay. it is coming up. It is coming Excellent. up. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thanks, Bobby. So today. Um, First, uh, I'm going to give you my solution. This was some, uh, it took a little while to find these facts. You got to do a lot of digging. But I believe I found a connection between Elmo and William Allen White. Um, like we said, William Allen White's family is from the South. Um, Wait, William Allen White's or Elmo? I'm sorry, Elmo. Elmo's family. <laughs> Elmo's family is from the South. Um, specifically, Elmo's great-grandfather was a member of the Texas Rangers. Who knew? Wow. Um, so also a service monster? Also a service monster, wow. yeah. <laughs> um, so his great-grandfather was a member of the Texas Rangers. Texas Rangers were part of a group that went to the Mexican-American border during the Mexican Revolution. They went there to help defend the border, stabilize the border. Also among those on the border was Frederick Frederick Funston, uh, who was a, uh, a very good friend of William Allen White. So it's interesting that it's possible Elmo's great-grandfather may have known Frederick Funston. Wow. So there you go. <laughs> Why it's, in it's the history far. books are there not drawings of, of, of service monsters? Well, you know, there's not a lot of whole there's not a whole lot of images from that mission on the border. So <laughs> and I don't know that I don't know that monsters made a large contingent of the force, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. probably just a couple. Um, so that's probably why there's not pictures of him. <laughs> So, Nikhil, I believe wow. you have an alternate, possibly more legit solution. Yeah, but definitely not as historically exciting right. as that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, every day Elmo goes to work at Kaufman Astoria Studios, which is the building where Sesame Street is filmed in Queens, New York. Sorry to ruin it if you thought Sesame Street was a real place. <laughs> uh, Kaufman Astoria Studios was built by Paramount Pictures in 1920 as a place to record feature films and short films. <clears throat> they chose a location because it was close to Broadway where all the actors were. Uh, one of the first film companies to release its pictures through Paramount was the Lasky Feature Play Company, which was financially backed by Samuel Goldwyn. And Goldwyn would later go on to start the Samuel Golden St- Goldwyn Studio, which produced such films as Aerosmith, um, which was a movie based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Sinclair Lewis. Well, one of Lewis' biggest fans was William Allen White. And in 1920, White wrote Lewis a letter praising another of his novels entitled Main Street. Uh, The two men kind of shared the same folksy American writing Mm -hmm. style. Um, With the letter, White sent a blank check to purchase uh, copies of Main Street to send to his friends as Christmas gifts. And he also asked Lewis to autograph the books with personalized messages for each recipient before returning them to White, so that or sending them to White, so he could mail them to his friends. So White sent a letter and a blank check, yeah. to Sinclair, 
Sinclair Lewis. Sinclair yeah. Lewis, telling him, "Hey, fill this out for the cost of some of your books. Sign uh-huh. them so I can and, give them to my friends." And then what send a, them to me. What a needy friend! <laughs> Doesn't that sound a little pompous? <laughs> like you don't have anything else to do. Why don't you just sign this? And he included examples of how he should how he should autograph the books. Like it would say, you know, to to Dr. Mayo with, you know, Christmas wishes from William Allen White, and then it would be signed. Right. Do you have Lewis. to give Do you have to give a Pulitzer Prize-winning author suggestions about what they should put in One the descriptions? One would think no, but... <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Nicely done. Nikayla, you connected uh, William Allen White to Elmo by way of uh, a studio in New York and mm-hmm. uh, Sinclair Lewis. Very yeah. good. Bobby, you want to give us the challenge for the next episode? Sure, that would be fine. In the spirit of Christmas, we want you to connect William Allen White to the Snow Miser, a Jack Frost-like puppet with a penchant for ragtime music. Snow Miser and his stepbrother, Heat Miser, became famous for their role in the 1974 stop-action Christmas special, The Year Without a Santa Claus. What's with the puppets lately? <laughs> We're <laughs> on a, a puppet theme. <laughs> I don't know. It's a theme. I don't know. Uh, so come back in two weeks when we connect William Alawite to the Snow Miser. Find out who's cooler, a newspaper editor or a villainous weather manipulator that dances with a cane and wears a straw boater hat. Yeah, I'm a problem that I never, ever be solved. And no that concludes episode 121, What a Doll. If you would like to see images of this homemade African-American doll, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcast. If you would like to receive updates on new episodes, become our friend on Facebook. Just search for Kansas Historical Society. Feel free to leave comments related to our most recent podcast. Your feedback is always welcome. Come back in two weeks when curator Laurel Fritch and I examine the Santa baby. In the 1960s, a family in Valley Falls, Kansas dressed their newborn baby in a tiny Santa suit. Forty years later, we have the suit and it couldn't be cuter. Find out how Christmas cheer drives a family to dress a baby like an obese 50-year-old man wearing long underwear. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. So amazing, so amazing, so amazing. It's amazing, so amazing, so amazing, so amazing.